Um, the Gospel of John is an incredible story in which we get to have a first-hand account of who Jesus is. Uh, people have all sorts of different opinions and ideas about who Jesus is. And no matter where you are, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, every single one of us agrees that he's been the most important figure in all of human history. He's oriented, he's changed, he's impacted the lives of every single one of us and human civilization since. And so the realities, the claims, and the person of Jesus is worth considering. It's worth us investigating. It's worth us exploring and finding out who really is Jesus. And the passage we get to look at today is altogether incredible, revealing, and at some point even challenging for us to really consider when it comes to Jesus. Because some of the things Jesus says, they're, they're a little hard to hear. But if we're willing to hear them, if we're willing to receive them, if we're willing to embrace them, there's life to be found in them. And so that really is the challenge for us today, even in the passage we'll look at. And for some of you, it'll be quite familiar, and it'll be one of those things that I want us to hear with new and fresh ears, that our hearts would be soft, that we'd be oriented toward the Lord, and that we'd be ready to receive his word. So I want to pray real quick one more time, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to gather. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, and may we give you our devotion, and may this be an act of worship as your Holy Spirit has his way with us. Amen. Um, one of the things I love about Halloween is that kids go absolutely nuts in just wearing their costumes and they'll all come to the doors and you get to see all the different outfits that they're dressed up as. And at our home, Halloween is not really just a one-day dress-up event, but it goes on almost all year. Um, our girls love to dress up. We have costumes. In fact, the day after Halloween, when everything goes on half price, all the costumes, we go and stock up because my, my little girl, Emma, especially who's three, she wants to be in a costume basically all times that we're at home. And what she loves to do is almost even combine her costumes. So she's got like this, this pirate sword and she's got an Elsa dress and she's got butterfly ears and she's got, you know, mini high heels on and she's running around the house. And every single time, every combination, every concoction, she loves to come and display to me what she's dressed as. Look at me, daddy. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. There's something within her that craves for us to look at her, for us to be looked at. And she wants me to see her. She wants me to know who she is. She wants me to know what she's like. And if I'm honest, there's a part of me. I mean, I'm, I'm in my 30s now. I should probably be beyond this, but I still have that same tendency where I want people to look at me. Um, it was a couple weeks ago. Um, I was on our bedroom floor and, and Crystal would walk by our room every once in a while. And when she did, I'd you know, start doing some push-ups or something like that, just so she'd have this image that I was actually in there working out. And then when she'd go away, I'd go back to folding my socks or something much more mundane. Or every once in a while, which happens about as often as a lunar eclipse, I'll eat a salad. And when I do, I always take a picture of it and I'll send it to her so that she thinks I'm eating healthy. Reality, I, I don't eat salads. Maybe as often as I vote, um, I, I eat a salad. <clears throat> but I wanted to give her the impression, look at me, look at me. I should be beyond that, I know. This is, but this is straight up vanity. Um, but for Jesus, there's something different because in his look at me, look at me, look at me, it leads to life. It leads to life for you and I. But what do we see? What do we understand when we look at Jesus? This is really what Jesus wants us to see and what happens in John 11. And John 11 is this incredible, climactic, seminal moment in the Gospel of John. In fact, after this, the story changes and it slows down and becomes so much more intimate and personal and private as Jesus has very 
near conversations with his disciples. But up to this point, he's been conducting his public ministry. He's been doing miracles. He's been doing great public debates and conversations, even with the religious leaders of his day. And so what we're going to see today is Jesus has this climactic moment where he's going to reveal to us what I would consider to be the seminal, the most important thing about who he is and why he came. So if you want, turn to John 11. There is a Bible in front of you. We'll also have it up on the screen. Uh, We're going to be in John 11 today, and we're going to look at this incredible story that I know many of us have heard before. Here's what it says. John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That story is told in actually the other Gospels, but I like that John is writing to his audience and he knows that they would have had a level of familiarity with it anyways. So the sisters, knowing that their brother is sick, they sent to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So who are these people? Who's Lazarus? Who's Mary? Who's Martha? These are not strangers. These are not people that Jesus is unacquainted with, but rather they're people that he loves. These are people that have, in many ways, been like family to Jesus. He's close to them. They mean something to him. It tells us right there in the text. Don't miss that. That these are people that Jesus loves. I love that when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, they they don't say, hey, this is Lazarus who's done a bunch of good things for you. This is Lazarus who's lived a very noble life. This is Lazarus who everyone likes. But instead they say, this is Lazarus, the one who you love. Jesus knows us. He knows his disciples. He knows his followers by our love for him. Not by necessarily all the things we do or don't do, our competency or the things that we accomplish, but rather our love for him. And Lazarus, Lazarus had a deep love, a deep affection for Jesus. But such a strange story, isn't this? If you look at verse 4 and 6 again, let's look at this one more time. It says, but when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, this illness will not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is already tipping his hand. He's wanting to make clear, he's wanting to frame the rest of the story we'll look at of what exactly is going on here. He wants us to understand all the rest that we're going to hear has this as an umbrella, that Jesus realizes all that's about to unfold, and it's going to unfold in a framework, in a lens of what Jesus is trying to show us and teach us. So what does Jesus do? Verse 6. Look at that again. This is so strange. It's one of the most terrifying verses when you think about it. It says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's almost like you want to rub your eyes. You're like, am I reading that right? He, he hears that someone he loves is sick and he stays put. What would you do if you got word that a loved one of yours was sick? Would you stay where you are or would you go running? Such a weird response. It's almost like if I got a friend and he was moving and he sent another friend of ours to, to come tell me and say, hey, Dan's moving. And I said, well, I really want to help Dan, so I'm going to stay put. It's a really odd response, isn't it? When someone says they have a need and you choose to stay put, what could that possibly be about? I love Jesus lets us know. He says, what I'm doing, the whole thing I want us to see here is that I'm going to be glorified through what occurs. 
Now, there's two ways that glory is spoken of throughout the New Testament scriptures. There's two ways. It's very important we understand this, too. One is often to give praise. To give praise. Kind of like, you know, giving, giving praise to your friend Ted. Ted, you got a strong jawline. You're really good at math. And I love the way you drive. Like, Ted, you're awesome. So that's a, that's a good way to, to, to revel in Ted. To, to exalt Ted. To acclaim Ted. But that's not what's going on here. The other way that you can glory in something is to show what it's all about. To reveal it. To have it made known. To have the ambiguity, the dirt, the grime stripped away so that it's clear. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. He's saying, what's going to transpire? What's going to go on? Even what is about to happen is meant so that you guys will have greater clarity as to who I am. That's what we're talking about here. So it goes on. Let's look at the next section of verses. It says this in verse 7. I'll bring it up here. Or we have it there on the screen still. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So it wasn't too far away. Judea was just a couple miles out. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that Jesus has done nothing but stir up controversy and trouble with many of the religious leaders. They've not been too excited about his presence, and multiple times they've tried to do him physical harm. So his disciples are saying, if we go back to Judea, it might get messy. Are you aware of that? And Jesus says, I am aware of that. And then he says something that just sounds very Jesus-ish. It's a weird phrase, but I'll unpack it here for you in verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light that is in this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Basically what Jesus is saying is, I'm here, it's time to get to work. Or as one commentator put it, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. That's all he's really saying here is, I'm present, I know what my life's for, I know what my mission is, and I'm going to continue to be about that business. As long as I'm here, it's light out. And what do you do when it's light out? You don't sleep, but you get to work. So let's get to work. I love how Jesus just kind of gets very practical with it. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. This is great. But I go to awaken him. Disciples, sometimes I think, I, I just almost think of like Back to the Future, Marty McFly and Biff is like knocking on his head, hello, McFly, anybody home? The disciples said to him, Jesus, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, won't he awake? Won't he recover? They're thinking, if Lazarus has just taken a nap, if it's Sunday afternoon and he's got golf on in the background, he's taking a nap, he'll wake up. Why do we have to go there? I love Jesus just like, look, you guys aren't very good at metaphors. Don't you understand what I'm saying here? Lazarus is dead. He's D-E-D. Now, I know I spelled it wrong. That's how you say it in the South, though, I'm told. He's dead. Lazarus is dead. I'm trying to say asleep. It's a metaphor, but he's really dead. So now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking a rest in sleep. Love that. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So once again, we're seeing Jesus say, it's for your sake, it's for your benefit that I was not there. I didn't show up. I knew that this was going to come about for Lazarus. I knew that he was going to fall ill, and I knew that he was going to die, and it's for your gain that I wasn't there. Man, try swallowing that one. Try reading this passage. Try understanding this deep reality of what Jesus is trying to convey when you feel like God is absent in your life. When the family member's sick, when life seems frustrating, when nothing seems to be working out, and you don't even know how tomorrow's going to go at work. God, where are you? 
You going to show up? You going to do something? Or are you just going to stay there? And if we're honest, if we're really honest, how many of us have had these moments with God? How many of us have said, God, where are you? God, when will you show up? Love what Jesus is doing, though. In some ways, he's saying, I want to raise the bar on showing how miraculous this is going to be. I remember when I was in high school, me and some friends, we used to go over to my one buddy's house where his, his roof was about one story off the ground, and he had a pool down below. And we would just raise the bar constantly on what we would do to ride bikes and a unicycle off of his roof into the pool. Um, and we did it, especially when girls were around. Then we'd do even more crazy stuff. We'd put like someone on our shoulder and ride the bike off of the roof into the pool. I think what Jesus is doing, he's saying, I'm raising the bar. I'm going to make this even more dramatic, like the Seahawks in the NFC Championship game last year. Let's raise the bar. Let's raise the stakes. Let's make this even more dramatic. Because there's something about the drama. There's something about when all odds seem against you and seem against Jesus that we learn the most. It's when your life seems to be falling apart. It's when things seem super hard. It's when you don't know what's going to happen next that God loves to then show up and reveal himself and show himself to you. Sometimes he doesn't show up in the first quarter, or the second quarter, or the third quarter, or even the fourth quarter. He waits till overtime. God loves a comeback. God loves to display himself through the broken, through the mess. We're going to find out why. Verse 16, though, what I want us to see, so Thomas, Thomas who often gets a bad rap. What do we call Thomas a lot of times? Anyone? Doubting, thank you. Thomas gets labeled the doubter. And in fact, in some ways, we should remember Thomas more for verse 16 here. Thomas is steadfast. He's still thinking if we go back to Judea, we're all going to get stoned. Not in in like a Seattle way, but like in a Middle Eastern way. Like people are going to throw rocks at you. It's going to get awful. We're going to die. And what does Thomas say? Thomas says, well, that's the way it's going to be. Let us go and die with Jesus. This is incredible, but at the same time, it's a beautiful statement of what discipleship looks like. Now, let's be honest. Living in America, being an American, you have about a 0% likelihood of probably getting killed for Christ. You know, I mean, in all likelihood, you're probably not going to die for Jesus in America. So I think the question for you and I is, will we live for Jesus? Will we live for Jesus? Day in, day out, when the monotony sets in, when you're a stay-at-home mom and you're picking up Cheerios off the floor for the 400th time, when you're going to your cubicle and you're not sure why it even matters, when you're repenting of your sin that you just can't seem to shake, will you have a long obedience? Will you live for Christ? Will you submit all areas of your life? What is that place? What's that arena? What's that aspect of who you are that Jesus is knocking, that he's pressing, that he's challenging, that he's convicting you on and asking you to let him come in and be Lord of, even if it requires you dying? Dying to yourself, dying to the opinions of your family, your friends, your community, dying to maybe even a career advancement or possibility, but rather you begin to say, what would Christ have for me? What would Christ want What would make Jesus known? What would exalt the name of Jesus Christ through my life and through my actions? What's the place, what's the space that he's pressing on for me to follow? And I love just that faithfulness of Thomas. The Greek almost translates this way, I'd rather die than continue without you. I'd rather rather face death than be without Jesus. And what a beautiful heartbeat and depiction of a disciple. So as the passage continues, a little bit behind here, verse 17, Jesus goes. 
Jesus finally goes down. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is really important. In their culture, they wouldn't consider you dead until after three days. Here's why. Oftentimes, maybe someone would have too much to drink, and maybe they're a little lifeless, maybe they're a little motionless, and uh, they didn't have the medical technology we have today. So the last thing you'd want to do is bury someone and then have them wake up from maybe a night of too much drinking and then be underground. So it would be three days, and in their understanding and their consideration, they really want to make sure that you were dead, dead, like all the way dead, not just partially dead, not like Princess Bride, like mostly dead, but all the way dead. And so four days, four days is plenty of time for anyone to be like, look, I am not a doctor, but that's dead. We're starting to even smell an aroma, as the text will tell us in a minute. It's starting to get stinky. So this is, this is dead, dead. That's why that's telling us right there. It's all the way dead. So in verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So after Jesus just kind of hangs out for two days, he makes his way over, two miles. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you been there? Have you had those moments where you've cried out to Jesus and say, if you would have shown up, if you would have done something different, if you would have saved my marriage, if you would have kept my dad around, if you would have not let that person come into my life or that person to leave my life, then Lord, things would be different. And I don't think Mary's, Martha's asking it from a critical spirit. I don't think she's saying it in a judgmental way. In fact, I think her tone is much more of a way of, Jesus, it would have been so great to have you here. Because I believe in you, I know who you are, I know your power, and I've seen you heal people. Just a couple chapters ago, we read about Jesus healing a crippled man. We've seen Jesus heal many sick people and give sight to the blind. Martha's saying, man, Jesus, I really wish you would have been here. It would have been amazing. So it continues on, verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. She's basically saying, I know who you are. I know you're the son of God and that the Lord hears your prayers and that what you ask, what you ask your father, because he's a good and loving father, he'll give to you. She still clings, even in her moment of sorrow, even in her moment of suffering, even in her moment of great loss, she doesn't forget who Jesus is. What about you? In those spaces, in those places, in those times, in those seasons where you're suffering, where you're hurting, when it seems like, God, where are you? Do you lose sight? Do you forget who Jesus is? You call into question his goodness. And I love this. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is a cool interaction. Jesus is basically revealing what's going to happen here in the very near future. But Martha thinks he's speaking more in just kind of this perfunctory thing you do when you're at a funeral. Telling someone like, oh, it's it's all going to work out one day. Or it's all going to get better one day. She thinks maybe Jesus is offering her just this, this, this patent, you know, staple, cliche response of one day all this will be better because Martha knows her Bible. She's read Exodus. She's read Daniel. She knows about the day, the last day of resurrection. So this is probably what she's thinking. Her theology is right. Her understanding of God's final resurrection is right, that God will come one day to raise everyone from the dead, to right every wrong and to dry every tear She doesn't necessarily see exactly what Jesus is going to do in this moment. 
But which one of us, which one of us? I mean, this is why I love the Bible. It's much more gritty and raw than we give it credit for. Which one of us hasn't had those moments of saying, God, like, if, if you just would have shown up, God, if you just would have been here, God, things would have been altogether different. Let's continue. Verse 25 says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Boom. Jesus wants us to emphatically see the reason he came is not just to do some cool magic tricks, to heal some people, to make a whole bunch of lunch for large crowds, but he wants us to know that the resurrection, the concept, the idea of the resurrection, and I'm not talking an incarnation, I'm not talking a belief just for those who think they need religion to get through their day and because they're emotionally weak. I'm talking about a real resurrection is a person in the name of Jesus Christ, and he stands before Martha in her moment of sorrow and doubt and suffering. He says, I am the resurrection, the life, the very thing that you guys are waiting for. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Resurrection literally means to stand up, to rise up. And on that last day, which Jesus will provide resurrection for us all. But Jesus is getting at something altogether more sweet and powerful and even poignant for Martha. He wants her to see that he's the resurrection in this moment. That this suffering, this pain, this loss will not be in vain. See, you and I, if, if, you, are, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know this. You are no longer under the separation that death creates you and I, we are placed inside of Christ and we are secure in Christ. As secure as Christ is in reigning over the cosmos, you are in Christ. No matter what this world brings your way, no matter the pain, the loss, the suffering, the challenges, if you are in Christ, you are secure because he is your resurrection. Jesus says, do you believe this? We often think of belief in just this cognitive way, like, oh yeah, I also believe like the Pacific Ocean is the biggest one in the world. But what does that really have to do with my reality? What does that really have to do with my life? This word belief, pistis, the Greek word, uh, is, is often better thought of as trust. Do you trust this? Do you glom onto it? Do you hold fast to this reality that Jesus is your resurrection, that if you are in Christ, and what he means by in, is just like to be outside of a building and then you go in it. To, go out, to be outside of something and then come into it. So whatever happens to you, whatever comes your way, whatever challenges you face, you find yourself in Christ, knowing that your life is secure because it's in Christ. No matter what your life may unfold, no matter what challenges might come your way, you will rise again just as Jesus has risen from the dead. We have eternal life because Jesus has eternal life. And this is what it means to be in Christ. What an incredible statement. Jesus is saying that not only am I able to calm the storms, not only am I able to make water out of wine, not only am I able to feed people, but I rule and reign over death. I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty sure that the statistics of death, they're, they're pretty much one for one. Like, it's, it's pretty much a given. No one's really even, I mean, we get excited about technological advances. We love a new iPhone release. We love to see, you know, people maybe going to Mars. 
But when someone comes on the scene and says, hey, that whole death thing, that thing we just considered to be an absolute, that thing we considered to be a law of the universe, a non-negotiable, I'm in charge of it. This is, this is miraculous, incredible, life-changing news that the one who rules over death has come and said, I have defeated death. I've looked death in the face and I've killed death. Death no longer has a stranglehold over you because I hold you in me. You are in Christ. Amazing, beautiful, wondrous, life-changing news. This is who Jesus is. He is not just a good teacher He is not just a rabbi. He is not just a moral man. He is not a magician. He is rather the risen Savior. He is the God of the universe. He is the one that frees us from the death that sin brings, and he is the one that gives us life. He is the keys to life and death. And so Martha gets a little bit closer. I love Martha. She's so sweet. She has such beautiful responses to this. So what she says, she goes and says, I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. She affirms beautiful theological statement in which she identifies who Jesus is. And then what she does is she runs to get Mary. She runs to get her sister Mary, and she wants her to know, Jesus is here. I know it's a couple days late, but it's so nice at least to have Jesus here to console us, to be here with us as we mourn, as we grieve, as we lament. And in this culture, in this day and age, they really knew how to grieve, mourn, and lament. You would hire professional wailers. You would hire professional mourners. And they would follow you around. And as you cried, they would cry with you. As you were in sorrow, they would be in sorrow with you. In fact, this still happens at many funerals in the Middle East. If you were to watch footage, you can see it on YouTube even. Like, and, and, and often the funeral, the event, was for days on end. It was part of the grieving process. It was part of the mourning process. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who were loved by many, who were respected in their community, probably had a good number of people around them. Skipping down to verse 32, after Mary comes, she runs out to find Jesus. She runs out to see Jesus. And Mary has a very similar interaction with Jesus as her sister Martha. And this is what happens in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now once again, I don't think she's saying it in a mean-spirited, critical way. She's just once again saying, man, with a sense of regret, with a sense of of remorse, and, and knowing what I've seen you do, it sure would have just been nice to have you here. I just love that this is echoed. This is almost done with Martha, and now it's done with Mary because it shows how much you and I think of our suffering. It shows how much sometimes our view can be limited to what God is doing in our life because the pain seems so strong. And the stronger the grief, the stronger the pain, the often more blinded we are to what God is doing. That's just the truth of the matter. It is often when the pain is the most intense, when things are the hardest, that we need those around us to remind us of what God might be doing to be curious, to keep our eyes open, to wonder, to expect, to seek, to pray that Jesus will continue to have his way. Verse 33, I love this. Jesus is amazing. I mean, good grief. I can't believe we get to study this. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. I love this. This phrase here, deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, is is almost a way of saying Jesus was, he, he was in anguish. He was agitated. He was shaken up. 
the Greek almost gives a sense of he's shaking. Have you ever been that sad or been in that sense of, of mourning and loss that you physically begin to shake? Jesus is, he's, he's looking around, and I can only think what he's probably going through his head, this, deeply, this sense of, of, of being deeply troubled and agitated. He's so sick and tired of the way things are. He's so sick and tired of seeing funerals. He hates that there has to be hospitals. He's tired of wars. He's tired of famine. He's tired of abuse. He's sick and tired. He's frustrated. He's worn out. Great um, theologian. It's a wonderful book. I'd recommend you guys read um, Alvin or Cornelius Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga is his brother. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book where the title itself is, is exactly what I think is going on here. And he's trying to explain what sin is. And the title of the book is Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be. Not the way things are supposed to be. I think that's what Jesus is feeling. That this is not the way I created this. When I created back in Genesis 1 and 2, when I put this world together and I would look out at my great creation, when I look at this world and when I look at my people who are made in my image, I would say it's so good. It's so beautiful. That's the way it ought to be. And now I look around and I see that it's not the way it ought to be. And you have to wonder, sometimes as you go through life, many of us are asking, Jesus, why are you delaying? Jesus, I see all this injustice. Jesus, I see all this abuse. Jesus, I see all this sorrow. Jesus, don't you get the paper? Don't you have cable news? Good grief. Don't you know what's going on down here? When will all this evil come to an end. How many of us have asked those questions? And, and here's the truth. Like most of us, we get 80 years on this planet and sometimes we're so locked in and our view can be so small because we live in this sliver of human existence and God's story that it's hard for us to sometimes ascertain or understand that God might be doing much more through the evil and sorrow and sickness and sadness of this world than we can sometimes understand. Because once again, when the pain is strong, our perspective gets weak. There's this thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospels, a lot. He routinely uses this phrase, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. What is this kingdom of God that's so spoken about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. Um, there's an already not yet tension, as theologians will say, already. There's beautiful breaking in of the kingdom of God. So when we look around and we see things as they ought to be, as the way God designed them to be, when we look around and in God's common grace see beautiful things arriving out of this world, human creativity, human blessing, the way we ought to be in relationship with one another, when we see a child smile and grow up and love the Lord and serve their community, these are part of the kingdom of God continuing to break in, to unfold. And then not yet. And then not yet. Because there's parts of life that continue to plague us when it comes to sin. Sin has not been fully eradicated. It has not been fully removed. Now for you, the believer who's in Christ, sin is no longer your master. You're no longer under the dominion of sin. But rather, you've been freed to follow Christ. But that means at times, you'll still, imp you'll still interface and encounter sin. So we live in a world that's already not yet. And this tension continues to happen. And part of the problem with this sometimes, the reason I think that American Christians can have a hard time understanding this already not yet kingdom of God theology is we can think more of what God is ultimately trying to do is get us out of here. It's been a very dangerous and wrong thinking 
And in some ways, it's influenced by Greek philosophy, Platonic, that the body, this world is evil and bad and corrupt, and that what God's really trying to do is just get us out of here and raise our souls so we can go float in the clouds. That's not what God's doing. He's redeeming this place. He's making this place new. Your body is good. It's just not meant to wear down and break. It's just not meant to get old, and God's in the process of giving us new bodies and making a new creation. This is a wonderful, beautiful place, amen? I love this world. I'm so glad that God's going to make this world new, that I'll always have a physical body. And that actually means the work that you and I do, the work that you'll do this week, the relationships that you have, the way you treat this world, the way you interact with our creation has consequences. It's part of God's redemptive story. He's not going to just burn this place up and us get out of here. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We prayed this morning on earth as it is in heaven. And we look back at John 1. What's Jesus doing? He's inbreaking. He's forcing heaven down to earth. His desire is to see heaven break out on earth. That's the kingdom of God. And when we understand that, it changes so much of our interpretation, even of suffering and the sorrow and the loss that we experience. And I know, I know, this is when we get into questions, and man, we could do a whole seminar about this, of, well, why doesn't God just stop all the evil? The problem with stopping all the evil, like let's just say I had a switch, a big giant light switch right here, and I said, if you flip this switch, all the evil at midnight tonight will be gone. A lot of you would probably want to flip that switch, right? You'd be like, that sounds awesome, let's get rid of all the evil. Here's the only problem with that. Evil's not out there, it's in here. Evil is not this ethereal force, but rather it's you and I at our core that needs to be redeemed and nude. So in order for God to get rid of all evil, he'd also have to get rid of all of us. And so it's in his grace, it's in his mercy, it's in his steadfast kindness, it's in his patience that he continues to wait, to be patient, to draw out to that day in which he finally does get rid of evil. So anyway, back to our text. That was kind of just a a diatribe of sorts on evil and theodicy. Um, Seriously, though, look at Plantinga's book if you want to study more about that. Verse 35, though. Let's look at verse 35. This is the shortest verse in all the Bible. So who in here today has said, I would love to, you know, do some scripture memory. We can all do it together right now. Jesus wept. Congratulations. She just memorized a verse of the Bible. Um, Shortest verse in the Bible, but it's also the easiest. You already have one down. Awesome. So maybe you make it your New Year's resolution. You can do the next couple. Jesus wept. I love this because once again, it shows that God doesn't just come to save us, but he comes to be with us. That when you weep, Jesus weeps along with you. In fact, Jesus cares so much that he was willing to take the longest walk across the universe to come down and be near you and I. Allah is not doing that. He is not getting out of the skies to come down and humble himself and be human and weep alongside you. Atheism might teach you that your suffering is pointless and it doesn't really matter anyways to do anything you can to just numb it or get over it or get past it because ultimately it's meaningless. But rather Jesus says, I'll come and enter into it with you. This is stunning. This is miraculous. It's altogether life-changing. When we understand that Jesus enters into our suffering with us, theologians often say the, the language, um, that tears are often the language of the soul when words run out. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is experiencing at this moment as words have run out, as that sense of anguish and grief has overwhelmed him, as he's looking around and saying, I'm tired of funerals, I'm tired of this world being broken. He weeps, he cries, because he's altogether human. He's with us and he's for us. So this is where we kind of hit the bedrock and we'll camp out for a few more minutes, but verse 37, 
want you to see this. This is the crowd. And they kind of echo for a third time, a third time, the same idea. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Everyone seems to have this same exact response to what's going on here. Jesus, if you were so great, why couldn't you have done something for Lazarus? We've kind of been dancing around it this whole entire time, but I want us to actually kind of um, peer into it a little bit closer. What exactly is Jesus doing in all this suffering? Where do you and I go in our suffering? Here's a few things that we, we have to see. And I want us to see really clearly. Jesus is, is not saying that your suffering is pointless, but rather our suffering includes his love. The love of Jesus allowed Lazarus to fall ill. The love of Jesus allowed Lazarus to die and to be put into that tomb. The love of Jesus, as he said, remember back in verse 4, all this is being done for your benefit and also so that I might show you more clearly who I am. The love of Jesus allows Mary and Martha to mourn. The love of Jesus has these crowds come and they mourn and they wail. The love of Jesus even drives him to enter into their suffering and to weep along with them. This is incredible. The love of Jesus seems to be altogether connected and integrated into the suffering of his people. Do you realize that there? C.S. Lewis says that it's in our suffering and our sorrow that God shouts the most. Jesus is saying his love is, is at work. And what I love, what I love so much about Mary and Martha is their bitterness does not blind them. Often what happens when we go through a very painful season and we don't necessarily know why it happened, we become bitter and our bitterness blinds us to the work of God. May we be people who have soft hearts and allow God to be God so that when we suffer, when we go through hardship, we would not be blinded to bitterness, but rather we would be curious as to what Christ would have for us. What a different, altogether, faith-enriched way to look at things. And last, um, what is your measuring stick? What is your measuring stick? You're like, okay, what does that mean? When it comes down to it, every single one of us in this room, we have a measuring stick for how God loves us and what it means for God to love us. We have a measuring stick for what it means for our family to love us or our spouse to love us, or for our community to love us. In fact, my girls, they think if I don't let them watch Dora 28 times, then I'm, I'm not loving them. That's their measuring stick for my love, is how many episodes of Dora they get to eat and how much candy they get to eat. I disagree with their measuring stick. Because <laughs> I love them. Because I love them. But when it comes to God, what is your measuring stick? Often, we have this weird notion especially in America, that the best way to measure God's love is how much he helps us avoid suffering. Often, the way you and I measure God's love is by how much he helps us avoid suffering. And so this story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, there's no way you can begin to understand it unless you begin to see that the way you measure God's love is not how much he keeps you from suffering, but what extent, what depths, what lengths he will go to to reveal himself to you, even if it means suffering. This is altogether different. Now, if you look at your suffering and you say, it must mean that God doesn't love me, it must mean that God doesn't care for me, 
then you will miss God. But if you look at your suffering, if you look at your loss, if you look at your pain and say, how do I see Jesus more clearly in this? How do I experience Jesus more clearly in this? It's a, it's a game changer. See, you have to remember, what did Jesus say all the way back in verse 4? This is being done so that you would more clearly see who I am. Jesus will go to any length, he'll go to any extent to reveal himself to you so that you know more clearly who Jesus is. Jesus is not primarily concerned with your comfort. He's primarily concerned with your conformity to Christ. And often that conformity to Christ will involve periods of suffering, periods of refinement, periods of tribulation, periods of challenge. Even Thomas, remember Thomas earlier on saying, all right, Jesus, if, if this is where we go to die, I'm for you and I'm with you because I'd rather do that than be without you. And you can't help but almost hear the words of the Apostle Paul where he says to live is Christ but to die is gain. Now see, if your suffering will always press you deeper into Jesus, you will never find it unredemptive. Your suffering will always have meaning. It'll always have hope. So this is what we need to see. You don't measure the love of God for you by the extent he keeps you from suffering. And if you do, you find yourself treating God as your butler. God, you're here to make my life easy. God, you're here to keep me out of trouble. God, you're here to provide the things I need. God, you're here to serve me. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm here to show myself to you. I want you to see who I am. I want you to understand who I am. And often what that's going to mean is the stakes are going to have to be incredibly high. It's going to have to be a big mess. You're going to have to blow it big time before I show up. And you see just how good I am. You see just how powerful I am. You see just how much I can be trusted. So what's your understanding? What's your understanding? That, that God's primary job, that Jesus comes to minimize your suffering, to keep you in comfort, or do you understand that the purpose of your pain is that you would always more clearly see Jesus? There are things about who Jesus is, there are depths of a relationship that he wants to have with you that can only be obtained through suffering. There's no other way. And we all know this, whether it's our career, whether it's certain relationships, whether it's with our spouse, oftentimes you're only going to get to a certain place of intimacy and trust and vulnerability by first going through some hard stuff. Is it worth it? When you look on the back end of the really hard seasons you've gone through in life, when you face disappointment, you can often begin to have greater perspective. You're not blinded by the pain of the moment, and you begin to see the fruit that came out of it. I would, I would venture to guess that if we were to do a survey of the people in this room, some of your most meaningful spiritual moments and encounters and interactions with God, moments that have conformed you and changed you the greatest, have come out of deep suffering and loss. And for that, we can say, praise God, because the goal was not to stay comfortable. The goal was Christ. And if the goal is Christ, you get him no matter what, because you're in Christ. You get to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. So whether I have much or whether I have little, I have Christ. You guys need to see this purpose. Purpose can propel you through pain. Purpose can propel you through pain if you know the purpose. And the purpose of Jesus is to always, always, always end with you seeing him more clearly. That you would be near to him. That you would be close to him. So let's finish this out. 
See exactly what Jesus does. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It's a cave. I can imagine what Jesus is thinking as he stands before a cave. The next time he sees a cave, it's going to be his own. But he's encountering death from a different perspective. Here he comes to a cave, and you've got to imagine there's an audience. The mourners are there. Mary and Martha are there. People have probably heard Jesus is showing up. Let's follow him out. Let's see what he's going to do. You know, people are assessing, people are watching, people are waiting. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, I love this, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. The King James literally says he stinketh. So it's going to smell bad. When we open that, it's going to be a pretty foul smell. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Once again, if you have trust in those moments of sorrow, in those moments of suffering, that God is not done, then you will see him more clearly. Then you will understand more clearly who he is. And that's exactly what we see here. So they took away the stone. And imagine the setting. The stone is being rolled away. I'm sure everyone falls silent. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to walk in there? What's going to happen next? You can almost anticipate and feel the suspense. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And this is noteworthy too because Jews always prayed with their heads down. But Jesus lifts up his eyes because he's talking to his father. He's not talking to a God who's far off and removed. He's talking to his heavenly father. He knows him so he's not afraid to look up. Looks up, speaks to his father and he says, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I've said on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Once again, he's doing all of this for the people there and for you and I 2,000 years later. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Just imagine. I don't know how long it goes long. Maybe 20 seconds, 30 seconds. I don't know how long it takes a dead guy to get up. You got to remember, he's wrapped up too. He's mummy style. So he's wrapped up. And Lazarus comes out. I love this. One commentator said, if Jesus wouldn't have said Lazarus, but just would have yelled into the grave, come out, then all the graves in Jerusalem would have been emptied. So it's good he specified. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. I imagine he's pretty groggy. If you've been dead for four days and you find yourself wrapped up like a mummy, he comes out. And Jesus said to them, he probably says to his disciples, I'm not sure who got this job. Hey, go take the dead guy's clothes off. Like, go get those wrappings off him. I hope he gave it to Judas. Judas would have deserved it. But he says, go unwrap him. And Lazarus comes out. Now, see, this is a great story. And you're like, well, good for Lazarus. I'm glad he got raised from the dead. But the early church knew that this was a climactic, significant metaphor for what happens to all of us who are in Christ. That you and I, who were once dead, Jesus calls out. And maybe if you're not a Christian, I think Jesus is calling you today. He's speaking into your deadness. And he's calling you out. And you're probably thinking, well, I'm just going to leave them before he, he does something funny. He'll get you tonight then. He'll wait till you're sleeping. He'll just tap, tap. Come on out. Come join me. Come be alive. Follow me. Be near me. Jesus has freed us from death. 
Jesus freed us from death. This is the best news. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the climactic work and revelation of who Jesus is. Now, what I really want us to see here as we close, as we wrap up, I want us to see this, is that Jesus is not just coming to fine-tune us. He's not coming to just kind of sand off the rough edges. He's not saying these people have the flu and I'm the divine Pepto. He's saying, I'm coming to raise the dead. I'm coming to make new creations in Christ. He's not just coming to make you behave better. He's not just coming to fix your life. He's not just coming so that you get your act together. He's coming so that you're all ready made new. So you're all made new. That's why Jesus comes. Jesus comes to make new creations in Christ. He comes to raise the dead. That's who Jesus is. And you, you who are a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, Imagine how this changes everything. This changes the way we love people because we're dead, so this world has nothing it can throw at us that can defeat us. The, de- the grave, the grave is defeated, so you and I are free. We're free to love people. We're free to be bold in reaching out to our neighbors. We're free to love the world around us and to, 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 to live as if there, there really is meaning and consequences for the way that we go about our lives. We're free. The freest people are people that can't be harmed, and dead people cannot be harmed. If we're dead to this world and alive in Christ, we're, we're completely free. This is the power of the resurrection. This is the good news of the resurrection, and this is the reality of what Jesus offers to us. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he's calling you today to come out, to be made new, to be resurrected, to experience new life, to be made whole. It's a gracious invitation, as we learned in John three sixteen. That whoever, whoever would hear his voice, he's come to save you and he loves you.